Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Chelsea Gibson, a host on New Books in Russian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Today we are talking with Jennifer Utrata. She is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Puget Sound, and we're going to be talking about her book, Women Without Men, Single Mothers and Family Change in the New Russia. It was published by Cornell University Press in 2015. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I'm, I'm really excited to get a chance to talk about your book today. And so I wanted to start with kind of a very basic question, which is what made you want to study the phenomenon of single mothers in Russia to begin with? What is your background? Um, if you could tell the listeners anything about how you came to this project. Sure. Yes. Uh, well, I had gone undergrad to University of Chicago in history, but after that, I was in the Peace Corps in the former Soviet Union. I didn't know it then that I would be doing this research later on, but I was living with families, even though it was in Uzbekistan. I lived with Russian families there, and it got me interested in seeing a lot of those everyday life relations. This is in the early 90s. Uh, so that shaped some of my interest later going to graduate school at UC Berkeley. Um, I was interested in the ways in which families and gender relations are changing during Russia's transition to capitalism. And single motherhood struck me as a productive analytical lens to understand those changes. So I wanted to look at women's lives. I found it also fascinating that in sociology, there's a huge literature um, and single motherhood and family change in the United States and in the West. But in Russia, it was mostly just some quantitative studies uh, documenting things like the high divorce rates that Russia's had since the late 70s. Um, I knew that things were likely changing given non-marital births outside, you know, births outside of marriage that had been happening since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But no one really knew what this meant. So I thought, um, thinking about not just the quantitative phenomena of, oh, single mothers are a thing and increasing, but the meaning of single motherhood. What did it mean to be a single mother in the transition from state socialism to capitalism? Uh, that struck me as a productive question to look at the transition from those that would be, I thought, you know, impacted in uh, you know, some of the most challenging ways, uh, given that they're raising kids and in the workforce. Um, you know, even in the West, there's no scholarly consensus on the meaning of single motherhood, why it's spread so rapidly in the industrialized West, uh, even in countries where there's few, quote unquote, benefits for mothers raising children on their own, it still is increasing. So I just thought that uh, Russia would be an interesting context, uh, given the transition to capitalism, to look at this phenomenon that had been studied in the West, but not really explored as much in the Russian region. Could you tell us a little bit more about where you were and uh, the kind of interviews that you conducted? Like, what did it look like to do field work? And did you do it all at once or did you have to come back a, a number of times? Um, I chose to do it in two trips for varied reasons, mostly funding reasons. So I kind of had six months and I had applied for a Fulbright but hadn't heard yet 
wanted to get started. Um, but I didn't know when I went on that first trip how much more time I would have. So uh, on the positive end, it did allow me to be really uh, proactive and to try and think about how much I could really get done and learn in those six months. Um, I ended up going to uh, the advice of on the advice of a friend going to Kaluga in northwestern Russia, so more of a provincial city uh, as opposed to just Moscow or St. Petersburg. So a colleague of mine had a few contacts there and that allowed me to really um, do quite a bit of interviews, you know, after maybe just a week of hanging out, I could really get started with a couple of local contacts. Um, And um, yeah, I did about 70 some interviews that first trip and uh, came back to the States for six months, met with advisors kind of figured out plan B, learned I got the Fulbright, and that allowed me, I'm very grateful, to go back for another full six months to do more research. That's when I was really able to expand the research beyond single mothers to looking at the other groups that were really relative, uh, uh, sorry, important in their narratives, like the non-resident fathers, um, married mothers, grandmothers. So I ultimately did 151 interviews living with two different families. So I lived with one family the first six months, uh, a single mother, or actually no, a married couple <laughs> and their and their daughter through, the, uh, through help uh, of a friend and her contacts. And the second time with a single mother and her daughter. Um, so I was very much immersed, you know, in the field, in um, different social networks. It's definitely those families, but also uh, others that I met. Um, so yeah, the two uh, two six month trips was how I did it, and, and for me that worked well because it allowed me to kind of see what I had and the patterns, and go and explore them in greater depth on the second field work trip. So in your book, you ultimately um, are arguing that there's like a quiet you call it a quiet revolution going on in Russian life in the Russian family, and. All of it has to do with this rise in single motherhood, which you note throughout the book, and you've you've already mentioned here, is is kind of a phenomenon that's happening globally that people are still struggling to um, identify, even define. And so, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the Russian case specifically. Like, why is single motherhood growing, or is it even still growing today in Russia? I know it's been a little while since you've done your field work. So why mm-hmm. why did single mothers kind of um, emerge in, in Russia, and why are they becoming more normalized over time? Yeah, well, single motherhood isn't new in Russia. I mean, it existed uh, probably, probably um, also at the time of the uh, um, the Great Revolution, the First Revolution, but after World War II in 1944, they became defined in legislation. But um, I think I was first fascinated by the really high divorce rates in Russian society, and yet um, Russia was never included. Soviet Russia are seldom, I should say, seldom included in comparisons with the West, which, I mean, the U.S. has had had uh, very high divorce rates in the 70s. Uh, and Russia in the late 70s had the second highest divorce rate after the U.S. So that kind of got me interested. But then after, I mean, d- divorce and single motherhood is measured in different ways. But after the breakup of the Soviet Union, you have all these non-marital births, which were common after the Second World War uh, due to male mortality. But you have, again, more happening outside of marriage in addition to divorce. On top of that, you have a country like Russia, which still has the largest gender gap in life expectancy between women and men and high rates of premature male mortality. So 
uh, yeah, more women becoming widows, more women having birth out of wedlock, outside of marriage, um, and still high divorce. Still, it's about the, depending on how divorce is measured, the second highest rate in the world. The U.S. is lower than it used to be, um, but uh, Russia is definitely up there. But what did all that mean? Why hadn't it been looked at as a phenomena? Um, so that's when I started thinking about uh, the fact that people pay so much attention to political and economic relations, but not necessarily to family and gender relations, in spite of this large quantitative increase. So I was really interested in qualitatively looking at what are the meanings of single motherhood. I mean, I found, in spite of the growth in population, that's not really the main point of my study to document that, because it's an ethnography of the shifting meanings. I think there's fewer women willing to stay married or forego motherhood, if not partnered than previously. It's still hard for women to make it on their own, but more women feel a sense of control over their lives and the lives of their children. And they're willing to accept some hardship in pursuit of increased freedom and personal independence. So there's this belief that women can make it on their own without a man, without the state, even if it's not the ideal. And I think that's central to this quiet revolution. It's uh, not uh, not talked about as commonly, but I think those uh, family and gender relations are changing. And family and gender relations are often more fluid than we think, even in the West. Uh, but I think Russia, if anything, illustrates that kind of fluidity. I mean, single mother is not a fixed category. Um, you could be a single mother for a time and then repartner. Uh, you could be married and then end up divorcing to circumstances outside of your control. So um, I, I do think. Um, you know, even if it's not the highest in the world, it's not declining. And yet uh, in the West, there's been scholars that assume sometimes problematically that marriage is a solution to single motherhood if poor women could marry. Uh, I don't think any of this makes sense in Russia. The idea of marriage as some kind of guarantee is not thought about that way. Um, and so I thought I thought Russia is a case that could really allow us to look at single motherhood with fresh eyes, both in the United States and elsewhere. Um, because it's not really problematized as it has been in the United States, uh, where often there's racial dynamics that come into play, how concerned in the United States people are about single mothers. In Russia, uh, it was really kind of normalized as, you know, this is this is the way things are. You know, we have a problem with men and the state isn't very supportive. So single mothers weren't blamed as much, at least at the time I was doing research, it was considered yeah, this is the way things are. You know, I would talk to people about my research. Oh, I'm here to study women. Sometimes I would, rather than stay, saying the phrase single mother, I'd say women raising children on their own. And they would be like, wow, I guess you came to the right country. Uh, so there's this, this idea like, yep, that's kind of a thing here, women raising kids on their own. So whether it's formalized or not, it's a pretty ordinary situation. Um, and that intrigued me as well as a fruitful context to really understand this kind of family change. One of the most uh, fascinating things I found uh, reading your book, because, you know, you, uh, you make all these arguments, but you also show that even though single motherhood is becoming this kind of ordinary commonplace occurrence uh, in Russian kind of society, that the ideals of marriage and like the ideal family is, is still still staying the same in some ways. Like it seems like um, women and their mothers and even men kind of accept this is a non-ideal situation. So I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about or talk a little bit about how the rise of single motherhood has transformed the way that 
single mothers and women think about themselves, like how they've come to understand what single motherhood means? Yeah, well, I think of it as kind of a paradox that I was trying to explain, right? That the ubiquity of kind of, in, in the book, I call it everywhere and nowhere. There's kind of this ubiquity and almost statistical normalcy, maybe not, it's not everyone, of single motherhood. But there's also a lack of agreement of who really counts as a single mother in a society where um, it's so common and um, even divorced mothers in many cases don't get significant child support. Uh, you know, so, so another way of thinking about the Russian case I found is uh, where the gap between the ideals of family life and the realities is very pronounced. Uh, besides this family fluidity I was talking about that I think is pronounced in Russia. And I don't think that's unique to Russia. I think many people have these ideals of family life. I mean, even in the United States, you have four in 10 um, women are the made breadwinners for their family. And yet there are still these masculine breadwinning ideals. Um, so in Russia, I, I find that um, I found that to really be true, where it wasn't considered the ideal. This isn't like the first uh, first choice life, if you will. But as a second choice option, it was okay. You know, it was like, hey, you can't always have the ideal. Um, and it really wasn't uh, moralized um, in the same way that it can be in the States. And maybe it is by some in Russia, but it certainly wasn't common among those I talked to in Kaluga. And I did some research as well in Moscow as kind of a check to see if it was so different there. But most I did kind of aim for depth over breath by focusing on Kaluga. But um, yeah, I'm not sure how you want me to talk about that. There was this kind of gap between like the way they want things to be and the way things were. And a lot of that had to do with the problems with men and the problems people perceived with the state in not supporting families in the way they used to. So what are women supposed to do? How are they going to live according to their ideals when they have, you know, a, a lot of times they were divorcing uh, because of high alcohol abuse in the family that they were trying to protect their children from. I mean, um, or rampant infidelity where uh, men had been abandoned them essentially for another family or another woman. What, so, so it wasn't, uh, they didn't necessarily blame themselves for the situation. And I, I didn't find many other people blamed them. It was more like, oh yes, we have a problem in Russia with men's drinking and with the lack of support for families because the state, the, so, uh, the post-Soviet state did pull back on a lot of supports that they had provided even previously. Uh, not that that prevented divorce previously, but uh, it did provide more of a safety net, uh, whereas now women are navigating with, you know, often uh, a less robust safety net. Um, doesn't mean the ideals have changed. The ideal is kind of there, but it's, you know, it's kind of like a dream, something nice, but uh, not necessarily a reality. You know, there's there's like the ideal and, and Russian reality is what people felt. Yeah, one of the things that I was struck with is um, how complicated, probably how in some ways painful some of these things may be to talk about. You really had to get into these pe people's like life history of like, did your husband cheat on you? You know, did he beat you? How did you know? How did you survive these things? And I'm wondering what it's like or how you go about making relationships with people who ostensibly were strangers maybe a week or two weeks ago and how you get them to open up about such intimate and personal topics. Are Russians willing, if we can generalize, you know, were they were they willing in, to talk about these things? Were, was there any differences between like the way that men and women might talk about these things? 
Yes, I think so. I mean, I did interview mostly women, right? I had the 21 interviews with non-resident fathers, but most were were women. I mean, certainly it takes time in an ethnographic fieldwork to build trust and rapport. Um, I did have a pretty good command uh, of the language. So I was able to chat with people about, you know, everyday life kind of things, Um I was living with a family already, so there was this element of hanging out, meeting some of their friends and their acquaintances. So kind of, we call it kind of a snowball sample of people you know, although I tried to not get too many people from the same network, you know, so there was some intentionality of trying to cultivate diverse networks of of folks. Um, but yeah, I, I, you couldn't really just chat up a cashier and have them give you the, one of these interviews that would often last a few hours. Um, so... On the other hand, I did find that through these social networks um, and building rapport with ordinary Russians over time, that many women respected that someone cared about their experiences. I would talk about uh, women raising kids alone, how that's important to understand the challenges of the transition. And um, yeah, I think I think it was unusual for them that someone was interested in this, uh, but I think they valued that sense, uh, that genuine sense that I, I was interested in it. Um, I mean, I, I talked about, you know, in, in sociology, we have confidentiality so I, and changing names. So people weren't necessarily that interested in that, but I would let them know that I'm not using real names in the study, things like that. Um, but I think it was just the respect that someone cares about their experiences and that it's more important for us to know about how different groups are doing in the transition to capitalism. Things like a divorce, the birth of a child, the death of one's mother, who one might have been counting on for support. These are all big life transitions. And I'm going to argue they're just as important, if not more important to many people, as the political transition from state capitalism, uh, sorry, state socialism to capitalism. I even had a mother, a married mother, talk about that. She's like, oh, yeah, the death of my mom. Now, that was an event. Not, not, not this political stuff. I mean, I, so, um, you know, I think people respected that I cared about that. I was a bit worried that single mothers would perhaps tell me just about how difficult life was and, um, you know, that go on and on, essentially, because I knew there'd be difficulties. Um, but many, what I found interesting is many single mothers did not want to only talk about that. They coped with difficulties, but they didn't define them as the main narrative of their lives. Many, So many were eager to correct that assumption, like, oh, wow, things are only so hard because you're single. Some actually thought that was interesting, given the challenges that married mothers face in Russia, depending on. So, so single motherhood is really a metaphor. Uh, for the level of support in a woman's lives. And we can't treat it as it's sometimes treated in some corners of sociology as just this subset of the population. It's a much more fluid state these days in people's lives. It's not necessarily expected. You don't necessarily plan to be single, but many have to cope with this at some point. Um, and so many women felt that they had some increased control over their lives, how they spent their money, how they raised children after becoming single. I was much more concerned about, you know, how I would get some men to meet with me because it's very uncomfortable to be a father, not be living with your children. That's the definition of the non-resident father, right? You're a father, but you're not resident with them. And then to have them talk about fatherhood. So that actually took quite a bit more work to get them um, 
they were also less responsible for taking care of the kid primarily. So they had work obligations, other things that made it a little bit more challenging. Um, I expected them to just challenge the main narrative I'd been heard uh, I'd heard from from single mothers, and I was surprised to learn that many non-resident fathers kind of agreed with the problem with men in Russia. Uh, you know, uh, the main contours of mothers' narratives were not challenged as much as I expected, but I did find it trickier to interview men. There were more last-minute cancellations and, um, you know, interviews where I might have preferred a quiet space in the home, but it was like after he finished his shift on the taxi at 10 in the evening while sitting in the taxi (laughs) or sitting in a cafe uh, that was smoky and noisy, you know, I I had to be a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit more flexible with getting some of those interviews and, um, uh, but yeah, I found I found many women, especially when I could come to them in their homes, found it interesting uh, just to share their life experiences. So, but yeah, they were intimate questions, and I always let them know that they didn't have to answer any question if it was too uncomfortable. But uh, you know, they were always welcome to ask questions of me as well. So um, I don't know. I think that ended up over time establishing some rapport and respect. Yeah, one of the things that I found really interesting was the consistency with which both men and women in Russia, um, the way that they shared this narrative that you're talking about, this common narrative about Russian women being exceptionally strong, exceptionally good parents, and men kind of being useless to a family. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the expectations of fatherhood in contemporary kind of like post-socialist Russia. Um, Because I don't know, I I got the sense that a lot of men felt like they didn't have a reason to be inside of a family. I don't know if you would find that accurate or not, but that was kind of the impression I got from the direct quotes that you would put in the book. Yeah, I would say there's a pretty low bar still for what being a father is. Uh, It's especially defined according to material provision and, you know, providing economically for a family. And um, that has a long legacy because after divorce in the 70s, 80s, often there would not um, be contact with divorced fathers and their children as much as we might expect in other countries uh, beyond the economic provision where they, you know, the state controlled, uh, they were able to dock the pay in most cases uh, to provide child support. So child support was considered a expectation. But again, this is a subset of fathers. So it's, it's those that are not living with their kids who are divorced. Sure. So it's what all fathers say, but in general, there's a large literature on men having been somewhat marginalized as fathers and in family life, possibly as a legacy of World War II, where there were so few men and really uh, many mothers and their own mothers, the grandmothers formed these kind of intergenerational bonds and would often be raising the kids and working in the absence of men after World War II out of necessity. So even though there were moves in the later Soviet period to get men more involved in families, to take more of a role, um, I think that the ideals of of a more involved fatherhood are nascent and they are occurring. Uh, But fathers often don't consider it super obligatory. They consider it as nice. It would be good to be involved. But I mean, it was astonishing to me, actually, how 
many men kind of discounted their own necessity beyond that material provision. Everyone thinks that, uh, I shouldn't say everyone, <laughs> vast majority of fathers and mothers, you know, talk about material provision is that's really the key, providing for your kids. But beyond that, there was a, yeah, a lack of a really robust, complex uh language in terms of all the things a father should do beyond that. It seemed kind of like there were even fathers that said, well, I mean, a mother's really at the heart of it. She's really necessary. A father, I mean, it's nice, uh, but not as necessary. I mean, they might've been justifying their own situation. And sometimes there's a lot of pain there if, um, you know, their particular partner had remarried or has a boyfriend who is a better father than they're able to be from afar. But this is a situation, too, in other countries that's not going away. The challenges of parenting when you're not living with your own children and you're having to navigate that. But in general, yeah, I would say that, um, you know, I'm not saying there's not involved fathers in Russia, but certainly men don't think of their own role as fathers, I found as as essential or obligatory as all that is expected of mothers. Yeah, I I, I, I had to oh excuse me. I um as I was reading your book, I I was reminded of a conversations I'd had because I I have a lot of students who their parents were born in Russia or they themselves are Russian and then they, you know, are living in the United States. And all the girls talk about Russian men like they're absolute trash. And I've always kind of not quite understood what they're talking about, but they're just like, I would never date a Russian man. They're not useful. Like they don't do anything for you. And this book was really elucidating and kind of putting those things into context. And one of the things that I thought was great about um, the book is that you mentioned that with this type of system where, where it's so heavily focused on women and like the mothers and, and the importance in their family, you can kind of forget that men actually wield most of the power in Russian society yeah. still. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could explain how this system is still patriarchal because you make a lot of allusions to single mothers in the Black community in the United States and how that's largely how Americans tend to talk about single motherhood even now. And the assumption is that those communities are um, matrilineal, like those, 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 those are matriarchies. And I would expect that a lot of people looking at the Russian situation would similarly think it's a matriarchy. It's a matriarchal system, but you argue that it's still deeply patriarchal. So I was wondering if you could talk about how this system still perpetuates or is perpetuated by kind of a more patriarchal power structure. Yes, uh, that's something I feel very strongly about that. I think I think matriarchal has been thrown around too casually, I would say, both in Russia at times uh, and in the West. So um, but I but in the Russian case, for example, I would say it's absolutely not a matriarchy in any sense of the word. Um, I mean, society, yes, expects women in most cases as mothers and grandmothers to carry out the bulk of society's care work right? Unpaid labor, care work. But that work isn't necessarily valued that much in society in terms of what you get your pension for, how you're going to live in your old age. I mean, same thing in, in the West. Those years caring for children will end up as uh, zeros in your pension unless you get paid work put in in there, right? It's uh, So a lot has been written about this uh, women's unpaid care work and chances of living in poverty and precarity in um other life. So yes, women have power, some in making family decisions, but it's still a patriarchy in the sense of it's a society with male dominated structures of church and state, uh, where women's labor is considered limitless. It's um, kind of 
taken for granted, but it's not necessarily going to sustain them in a material way. Um, so in that way, I've, I've thought a lot about this, and I, I found it useful to think of Russia as a case of matrifocality. So I think there's matrifocal, and there's others that have written about this as well, but uh, matrifocal families that dominate in everyday life. And in matrifocal families, there's the mother-child unit that is more central culturally than the father-child unit, or even the mother-father conjugal relationship, even that in heterosexual families, because of course there's not only that in Russia, but that was the focus in my study, at least in Kaluga at that time. Um, but matrifocality doesn't mean there's domestic maternal dominance. It's just a more elaborated role of the mother in the family, where the relations of the fathers might be um, marginalized a bit. It's been written about sometimes with Caribbean families as well. And the, so the, the elaborated role of the mother, the weakness of the conjugal relationship and the kind of, yeah, the matrifocality where many mothers would be thinking of their own mothers for support more than they necessarily would any man. Um, so I consider that matrifocal, but I think it's super important to realize that many of these women holding families together are in the paid workforce and talking about discrimination against women, against women as mothers. I mean, the phenomena of sexual harassment isn't often named in Russian society, but it's certainly a reality in terms of uh, how women are treated in the labor force as kind of second class workers in some cases and with discrimination uh, in their experiences. So they're not dominating in the political and economic structures in any way. No one could argue that. So that that dominance of um, male dominance of structures like church and state is patriarchy. So in that sense, it's a matrifocal culture in a patriarchal society, in my view. Uh, so I think, so I think calling it matriarchy is just factually untrue. This brings me, as you might expect, to like the question of feminism then and how we can understand either the lack of influence or the influence of feminism and kind of the Russian situation. Because I actually have a I had a Russian professor once who argued that feminism had failed Russia and that was part of the problem with society. I mean, she was native Russian and kind of experienced her own things. But I was struck by the fact that you argue that a lot of women, and, and we know this, right, a lot of Russians reject feminism, but you said a lot of women say they're waiting for the real man. They're waiting for, like, the ideal man. They don't want feminism. They still kind of want this kind of um, ideal family, as we've been talking about. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what your thoughts are or your impressions kind of going and living with these people and kind of observing this is they didn't want feminism is the sense I'm getting. Please tell me if that's wrong. But is is that a solution? Is it a problem to be solved, the single motherhood? Um, kind of how do you get away from this system where women still don't have a lot of power, but still take on most of the responsibility? Right. Well, I want to go back to the Russian scholar who said feminism failed women. Yeah. I see why they would think it that because feminism was a very, um, in the Soviet context, um, even though Soviet women did achieve many things, that's important to note. But uh, on average, the idea was that you're liberated and emancipated from above. And that means that you go and work for pay. 
there wasn't any kind of revolution at home in changing the relations where women were responsible for the unpaid labor, often very extensive, it's important to say, in a place, I mean, in Kaluga, it's not like people were shopping with their private cars or whatnot. This is on public transport, doing all the shopping, cleaning, um, care of children. Um, so when in the so- Soviet women were the classic case of the double, if not triple burden when you look at political work, but at least the double burden of paid and unpaid labor. So yeah, when you're liberated to do all that you did in the home before, but also work for pay, I mean, what kind of liberation is that? So I think it depends on how we define feminism. So it's kind of a dirty word in the Russian context, but that didn't mean that people didn't actually say things like, the state should do more to assist us and men should do much more to support their families. Uh, you know, that, that could be interpreted in other contexts as, as uh, valuing women and what women do. So, so I think um, a genuine feminism in terms of treating women and women's lives as equal value to the lives of men would mean having feminized caretaking and nurturing of children being treated as equal value to paid work where men are still dominant in Russia and in most countries. And so in this sense, it would change things. But, um, you know, uh, single motherhood, I think, still shouldn't be considered a problem when most women are doing their best to provide materially for their child, as well as caring for children in these systems of discrimination against women and against mothers and employment. But as I tell my students when I teach on gender and families, there's not one feminism. And so that's kind of the challenge. There's feminisms, plural, and multiple ideas, and often very little agreement for how to foster women's equal value in society. Uh, So part of it is just and issues with the term in Russia and how it's kind of been polluted by that kind of, you know, feminism from top down where it didn't, wasn't exactly genuine without changing the relations of what men did in the home or didn't do and what women were expect, what was expected of them. Um, but I think in terms of changing the structure of society, like law and politics, um, we can't have just a few token women, but equal representation of women who are willing to put women's needs as society's primary care- caretakers as well as workers first. Not that men couldn't do this as well, but in most countries, having more representation of women in decision making is pretty key, or at least greater representation. This wouldn't be enough. We'd still have to revalue caretaking and not have it be considered a detriment to employment, but as unpaid labor that makes employment and paid labor possible. Um, But I do think that without feminism of some sort, some kind of equal valuing of what women do, many women don't see their lives and struggles as being valued. That's part of why they were eager to talk to me because they have someone who actually cared about that. Um, You know, so, so, you know, maybe instead of feminism, we could talk about collective action, you know, for example, that would move to look at the challenges women face, that they're not their individual struggles, but struggles in a society where women experience discrimination and employment, sexualization and trivialization in media, all way that while they do the vast majority of society's unpaid care work and do quite a bit of paid labor, of course, as well. Um, So I don't know, it's possible the changes in the status quo could occur in different ways, but I think it's hard to see without some kind of collective action or women's activism. Um, And yeah, there is that bit that women would talk about of, oh, yeah, I just need, we need to have real men. But even that, if you think when they often talked about real men, they, they were talking about after we probed further and what that meant, men who would take responsibility for not only providing for families, but being active fathers. Um, 
that's something that feminism too has pushed for in the West, men's more equal involvement. Now, Russian women aren't using this, we need feminist men, but they're saying, yeah, real men who could be responsible for families, who'd be willing to, you know, be active fathers, more involved fathers. I mean, women did talk about that as something they'd like. And I think they talked about it because they see that as possibly attainable. But big systemic change, I think, um, big isms right now in society in terms of uh, feminisms, um, you know, there's not a lot of faith in that. Whereas you can still kind of have the dream of this responsible, reliable, strong man who's, you know, so people would talk about it, but I'm not sure they were counting on it, you know, so I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I think part of it is a labeling issue of feminism that's been discredited because of how women experienced it. In that case, I agree that femini- a certain kind of feminism failed women and or at least disappointed them. But I don't think it means that collective action and women's activism isn't needed. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, feminism had that kind of long wrought history called uh, being called bourgeois, you know, in the early Soviet period as well. Um, A lot of negative stigma. But what I find um, really interesting, too, is that women can articulate all these things and, and that some people might call feminist. Again, the word itself sometimes can get in the way. But um, I was really interested in maybe having you talk a little bit more about how you say that women felt entitled and, and continue to feel entitled to have a kid no matter what happens. And so I'm kind of wondering, one, like where that kind of desire for a child comes from, like why women would seek out to be a single mother, even if like men aren't working out for them. And mm-hmm. then two, like what are the logistics in Russia of like having a child kind of on your own? Because I didn't see any mention of the stereotypical thing we would think of, like, oh, single woman goes and gets artificially inseminated or like something like that. I'm curious how these women are going out and having children with the purpose of raising them on their own because they just want a child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's different routes to single motherhood. So even in my study, and um, although I, I don't remember the exact numbers on this, but most women were divorced. And I counted them in, as single mothers because uh, child support, if anything, but enforcement of that has gotten much, much weaker um, in the post-Soviet period. So many of those women were single. It's not like they had this active, involved father because they were divorced. Um, but there were those... Um, um, that had a birth out of wedlock as well, um, or a non-marital birth. Uh, maybe they were living with someone and they thought it would work out and he left. Um, so I, I, one thing I wanted to add, I, I think m- many women feel it's compulsory to have at least one child. I don't know that they feel entitled to it necessarily. I wasn't comfortable with that word necessarily, but they feel that in order to have value as a woman, in order to experience the full range of womanhood, you should have a child. So you should. It's not necessarily that you have to, because they knew that they they would often be responsible for, for providing for it uh, or thought they might. But um, but it was more that sense of what is what creates meaning in life. And it was very central to the women I talked to. Again, that's not all Russian women. I'm talking to those that have already made the decision, right? Not those that chose not to have children. So that's going to shape it too. But um, there really was no, no one was sharing a regret about having their child. I mean, most Russian women have 
one child. Um, I don't remember the exact number in the U.S. It might be 2.1 still on average slightly. But in the in uh, Russia, it's still um, still one child is most normative. You know, even in two is somewhat rarer. Um, so, you know, that idea of what makes you fulfilled as a woman and as a person, that becomes kind of a big motivating force. Um, that said, women necessarily it wasn't necessarily the case they're going out and seeking this. It's just that in a country where, um, you know, abortion rates have also been high, there were ideas that you wouldn't want to not have a child. So if there was an unplanned pregnancy, they would want to keep that child, especially if it was their first pregnancy, these kind of beliefs. So you're right. There were not necessarily, uh, I did not find people going to sperm banks to my to my knowledge that didn't exist, or it certainly wasn't talked about in my sample. Um, but the you know men and women have uh, partners, relations. Um, there were some cases where they uh, were open to the idea of getting pregnant, but I think it's similar to research in the West. Um, it's not that they were necessarily seeking it out, um, but they weren't willing to close that door if they became pregnant, especially if they had no child and it was their first pregnancy. Um, and then, yeah, then there's the issue of widowhood, too. I mean, it was wild that I had interviewed um, a 29-year-old woman who was, you know, divorced once and then widowed at 29. <laughs> um, you know, so men, uh, again, the, the gap in life expectancy between women and men and alcohol-related accidents is higher in Russia than in many parts of the world. So there were different reasons. Sometimes it's a non-marital birth. Sometimes divorce, sometimes um, the husband left or passed away. Um, but yeah, the the idea was men often have more choice in when or whether to become a father. You know, it might, they might um, not be able to not be interested when they're twenty three, but maybe ten years later they are interested. For women, there's less choice that they perceive, right? I mean, once they have a child, that's going to be their child. So. Um, Anyway, it's tricky because it's something that gives life meaning and they don't necessarily want to forego it. Although I'm sure there's women in Russia that do forego uh, having a child because of the difficulties. But many were proud that they were able to raise their child. Um, and, you know, if anything, they feel bad that, you know, men aren't willing to come around. Uh, but again, I, I don't know if I'm addressing your question. They weren't necessarily seeking this out in a super intentional way. They just weren't willing to close that door if they did become pregnant. No, that made sense. I may have just misunderstood it. But um, the the idea that women feel like to have meaning is to have a child, that was definitely something that I felt yeah. was uh, communicated very well, that like men may leave, but a child's love is forever. Or you mentioned something like that mm -hmm. um, in the book. But uh, we've talked a little bit already about kind of the unappreciated kind of unpaid labor that a lot of women do, kind of the childcare that they do. Um, but we haven't yet gotten to talk a, a lot about the kind of babushkas that are out there, the grandmothers um, who are really supporting these single mothers. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about what what Russian grandmothers are doing and how they kind of function as a part of this kind of, what did you call it, the quiet revolution in the Russian family? Like what role are grandmothers playing in it? Yes. Um, this was really a, a key part of, of the study because um, I knew enough about Russian families before I went to know that grandmothers would be important. But what I didn't know is just the extent of it. I mean, it, 
it became clear to me um, the first fieldwork trip that uh, really to not look more extensively at grandmothers in the way that they're supporting single mother families is really missing kind of a key part of the whole narrative of what it means. Because I think part of why some single, some single mothers talked about their lives even being simpler after a divorce, for example, or breakup because of some problems with uh, a man's drinking or infidelity or not having the money come home or not caring about the family. These are some of the major reasons. Part of that is because they're able to turn in many cases, although not all, it's important to say to their own moms um, who sometimes lived nearby, not necessarily living together. So again, some household studies aren't necessarily capturing the case where the grandmother might live a block away or 10 minutes away, but is there every day to pick up the kid from school, for example. Um, it just became really key that um, for some single mothers with that support, uh, they felt more control over their lives because more of the unpaid labor labor would sometimes be shifted onto grandmothers. Uh, so I talk about grandmothers in the book as kind of this reserve army of feminine self-sacrifice. <laughs> and I really feel that strongly. I feel that this is a case sometimes of age and gender power relations where, again, not in every single case, but in some cases, single mothers felt more entitled to relax after work, uh, more entitled to, um, you know, try to go on a, a date or meet others in terms of possibly marrying again, who knows, than their own mothers did, who were often, you know, relatively young, given when most Russians have kids, you know, so women who are still working in their late 40s, 50s, early 60s, often felt compelled to step in to help single mother daughters, um, and often did quite a bit of that labor, easing their single mother's daughter's burden, not in all cases, eliminating it. I mean, single mothers were still doing plenty. Um, but in some cases, single mothers had a form of kind of what I call in the book youth privilege in that relationship in negotiating uh, who did what when than the grandmothers did. Um, again, there's a lot of variance there, but definitely being able to count on your mom's support was something many did not want to be counting on their mom's support. A real man, quote unquote, or this great guy who would be involved was the still the ideal. But the reality was uh, men are, were not considered as necessary as their own mom's support. Um so that, uh, I, even though it didn't surprise me entirely, I, I, it did surprise me the extent of how important that was. And again, I think that goes back a little bit to the World War II years, uh, but also to this larger issue of discrimination in Russian society and the way that it's been assumed of grandmothers, even though grandmothers too wanted a little bit of leisure time or wanted to continue working. They loved their grandkids, but it was often more complex than assumed um, for them. One of the questions I had was whether or not you got to talk with these women that you were interviewing, kind of the, the single mothers and not their grandmothers. Did like these these younger women, did they expect to then play that role for their children? Was there any kind of self-awareness about this kind of cyclical nature of that relationship? You know, in retrospect, I wish I had probed even more on that. I think I was just so much trying to figure out what was happening in the then and now. In general, there was not a lot of conversation mm -hmm. about what they would expect in future years. And actually, any questions I had about kind of 
ideas for the future next five years were often kind of laughed about like, oh, Americans, they can like plan ahead into the future. So, so there really was not a lot of building this to talk, you know, and so that might have been part of my reasoning is, okay, I'm going to focus on what's happening now, who knows. Uh, but yeah, I think there is a focus on, there was so much energy that it takes as a single mother, whether or not you had a grandparent or not, I will say, right? Although that shape does shape it. Um, it takes so much energy and time and resourcefulness to kind of be a successful, quote unquote, or strong single mother, that thinking about like some future years and what you might do, I, I just don't think it, you know, it, I mean, even in my own life now, I wasn't a parent when I did my research. I am now, but am I thinking about what I'm going to be doing in 20 years? No, I'm not. I can't even think beyond like the next year or two. And this is an American society, not Russian society. So, so um, yeah, I, I, Kind of, I'm curious and wish maybe I'd probed a bit more with that. But I also think there was a reticence to really project a lot into the future, um, into what they might be feeling later on then. I mean, some did take, I felt their mom's help for granted a bit, but not everyone. I mean, there's variation there too. Um, but yeah, there were some cases where uh, I thought the grandmother was doing so, so much, um, you know, again, kind of uh, unappreciated in many cases. So that brings me kind of to our probably final question, because I know your current research is continuing this like thread of the grandmother. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, um, I'm excited. I'm um, looking at what I'm calling uh, or what another scholar had called intensive grandmothering. So I'm calling it an intensive grandparenting because there are grandfathers who are also engaged in this, but I still think it's more normative for grandmothers to be intensively involved, which I'm defining as grandparents that step in to provide a regular, uh, some regular childcare for grandkids. I mean, there might be lots of ways, but I'm finding this to be more common in the United States. I mean, we know that working class families, poor families, families of color, it's been normative for grandparents to often um, be more involved than like among white middle class, upper middle class families. But I think that's changing a bit with lack of supports for parents who are often both working with kids and uh, having that familial support becomes increasingly important to many parents. So Russia has kind of sensitized me to thinking about intergenerational relationships. And I've gotten some funding. So last year I had a fellowship where I was carrying out this research on intensive grandparenting, mostly interviewing parents relying on a grandparent for some regular childcare. Again, in most cases, it's mothers that are still arranging childcare in uh, American households, um, but some fathers. And then the grandparents, often grandmothers still providing some regular childcare. And often actually grandfathers are doing a lot, but it's still often through their spouse, who's kind of the main point person. So um, trying to understand what that means in the American context and um, why it's considered necessary. I think in some cases, uh, grandparents want to help, but sometimes they also don't know what they really got themselves into. <laughs> it becomes so, so much, um, you know, during years that they might've wanted to do other kinds of things. So again, it's kind of the, you know, the way that we um, have few resources for care work in our society and the ways that grandparents are stepping in, I think needs to be looked at more carefully. Um, especially given 
you know, economic instability and family instability. I've interviewed some grandparents who are like, well, got to step in and help keep the units together. I mean, they're stepping in to help keep those marriages intact in some cases and to avoid pressuring fathers unduly. So there's complex reasons. It's not necessarily just about love for grandkids. You can have love for grandkids without, you know, stepping in to do intensive forms of labor. But um, I'm also thinking of it as kind of a class project where they're worried about their uh, their kids, adult daughters and sons, like falling behind, falling out of the middle class. So they're willing to step in and provide childcare. But childcare is actually only the tip of the iceberg. Honestly, there's so many other supports that familial supports that shape families. So, but yeah, I do think Russia kind of uh, was the spark for this interest of mine. Uh, why did you choose to kind of start doing a project in the United States or had you just kind of, you learned Russian, so you were able to use it. So you sh- chose that project, but you needed to do research closer to home. You said you had children, right? Maybe is that one of the reasons why you chose to now look more at American families? Yeah, that's that's part of it. I mean, I think uh, that's probably the main reason because I'm still interested in Russia and interested in writing about it. But in terms of doing another kind of book length study, which is what I hope this will be, um, I needed to find something a bit closer to home. And I, I found it interesting that the same kind of, uh, you know, idea, this neoliberal ideology I talk about, about the single mothers in Russia, like, I'm relying on myself alone, many of them had said, even though over time, I'm like, wait, how, but, but she's not alone, because her mom is providing all this. She said, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find that some of that actually, it, you know, I was curious about whether or not it occurs in American families, because especially among the middle class, you're supposed to be doing it all yourself. And yet I've observed in having, um, I actually have three kids, um, 14, 12 and five, that uh, I actually find that grandparents you know, are not involved to the extent they are in Russia, but they're still much more than I think some of the scholarship has recognized. So I kind of have theoretical reasons to want to like, you know, push forward our uh, the place of intergenerational relationships in families and kind of sustaining nuclear family myths, um, which I think the nuclear family myth exists in Russia and it also exists in the United States. So I, I, I like to think comparatively about that, but then part of it is practical reasons of, um, you know, needing to do something a little closer to home as well. Well, that project sounds really interesting, and I can't wait to see, you know, what kind of other similarities you might find with kind of post-socialist Russia with the same kind of neoliberal capitalism that we um, have here in the United States. But I think that's about all we're going to have time for today. So thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been a really interesting conversation. Um, For everybody out there, just a reminder that her book is entitled Women Without Men, Single Mothers and Family Change in the New Russia. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you about it.